There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. Hello and welcome to another episode of I Could Never Be here on the Popcorn Talk Network. I'm so thankful just for you guys to be able to be here in studio, to be able to talk with our guests today. Every Monday is a new chance to be able to just pursue your dreams, to be able to just grow and be able to just do what you love. And that is just the beauty of what we have and uh, what I'm able to do here and be able to help inspire you and motivate you. Certainly the purpose of this show is to do just that. You hear from the people that are very successful and that you maybe have put on a pedestal and say, man, I could never do what they do, but you can. And we able, are able to bring them in studio and be able to share their lives and be able to share their journey. And that's exactly what we're going to do with today's guest. But as always, I always start the show with some advice for a better life. And today's advice is just to be thankful for what you have. Certainly, if you've been following the news, you know about the very just destructive fires that are going on in California, both in Northern California, Southern California, certainly here in Los Angeles, that is just very much destruction going on. And it knows no bounds. It's not a rich person thing or a poor person thing or race or gender. It's everyone who is affected by this. And it sadly is not usually until you're in a bad situation that you appreciate what you have. And so many times we should just take a look at the world around us and our lives and be, man, be so thankful for what you have. So just that's my inspiration and motivation for today because on a lot of days you have your health, you have a job, you have the opportunity to advance yourself. And certainly if you're listening to today's show, that's exactly what you're doing. You're going to get that from today's guest who is incredible. And I, I love her story, and you know her from Sacred Lives. She's the executive producer there. She also was involved in Netflix. Jessica Jones has been involved in so many other things. She's one of the leading uh, females in film, in Hollywood, just incredible. And it's amazing. She actually grew up without a television, which is amazing to be able to be so involved in TV and just production and to be able to have grown up without a television. And so without further ado, I want to be able to just talk with her and be able to share her inspiration and motivation. Rael Tucker, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very grateful to be here on the whole gratitude train. There you go. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. And it's amazing. Growing up, and we'll talk about this so much more, but it is still stunning growing up without a tv and to be so involved do you do you think about that of the 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 span of what it's taken you to get here absolutely i think i'm a very unlikely person to have made it in television <laughs> but i think that's also why i made it in television mm-hmm. and to clarify i you know growing up without a television is because i lived on a tiny island mm-hmm. and most of the houses out there didn't have a lot of them didn't even have electricity you wow. know or hot water in some of them and so you couldn't have a cable or mm-hmm. anything like that right and so we couldn't get reception on a television wow. it was it was literally not because i was you know i was in cults and all kinds of weird things in my childhood <laughs> too we weren't against tv it would just we just didn't have one and so what that what that meant was I uh, I spent my childhood reading a lot and mm-hmm. making up stories and writing my own stories and I think it it definitely informed how I got here. No, certainly, and it's had an amazing impact. And I know I think you even 
used a lot of that upbringing in Sacred Lies, which, congratulations, I know it's been a huge hit on Facebook Watch. If you're not watching this show, every episode is out. It came out in July, wrapped out in September, just rave reviews, tens of millions of views on Facebook. That's got to be incredible to now have that out and be able to just hear that fan response. It's been really the most rewarding thing I've gotten to do in my life, actually. And it's not just because, hey, I got to make my own television show, which is a big deal. <laughs> I've, I've produced and executive produced and written for a lot of amazing shows, but I had never had the chance to do my own until mm-hmm. now. So that was a big deal. But the bigger deal is that I made something that we really believed was positive and good for the world that had that had a message that we really cared about mm-hmm. and we got to actually hand that to a community of people that heard it and really responded and and that's the most gratifying experience. What is it like hearing from people of man how much they love the show and how much they're watching? I know the community on Facebook is incredible too and you're engaged in that and you guys are listening to what people are saying? Oh my god. I I got to say so shout out to the keepers. The keepers are the big okay. fans, you know, we call <laughs> them that of Sacred Lies and so that's a, a community of tens of thousands of people that get together and talk about the show on Facebook. Um and I've never been very active that way in communities <laughs> online. It's not really been my thing. Mm-hmm. And going to this, I was terrified that there were going to be trolls and there were going to be people saying really hateful stuff. And because my... There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. The show deals with people with disabilities mm-hmm. and it deals with race issues. And yes. there's, you know, it's very political and it has, a, you know, talks a lot about God. I was very afraid of some of the messages that mm-hmm. we had. The opposite has been true. This is one of the most kind, committed groups of fans I've ever seen. They are talking about their beliefs, their differences, racial issues, their childhood with each other in this fan group, as well as the show. And there's been almost no negativity. There's been nobody on there trashing other people and attacking other people. It truly was like, I think right now in the world we live in with all the divisiveness and all the stuff that's going on, people really want to find a place where we can connect with each other Mm -hmm. and not, and feel safe and not feel attacked and talk about something that actually is positive. I I think people are hungry for that. And I think that certainly is part of why any creator creates, to be able to start dialogue, to be able to start start discussion. And so to, to see it in motion and in progress, that's amazing. It's been literally the most incredible experience of my life. Like, I t- I've taken screenshots of just some of their posts and some of the things that they've said. And, you know, people are talking about childhood trauma and, and what they believe in and, and God and what they don't believe in. And just to be able to watch people sharing that way because of something that we created, it's, it's the most important thing I've gotten to do. And I'm so grateful to all of them for actually being vulnerable in a public mm-hmm. space to talk about this stuff in a respectful way. It's... The most beautiful thing ever. Now, this show was on Facebook, which is like I get the new frontier maybe of where content is going. What was your expectation there? How was that uh, like putting a show on Facebook versus putting it on a TV screen or in a movie theater? Well, I think it's similar in terms of production and in terms of how we make a show. It was mm-hmm. almost exactly the same as I would make a show for HBO mm-hmm. or Netflix. It, production worked the same. 
really the differences was once it premiered and once we were actually talking to people online every day. Like Elena Kemporis, who plays Minnow Bly, yep. she was on the community page from day one, you know, interacting with the fans personally and talking to them. And I think the success of the show has been largely because, you know, Elena, myself, Kevin Carroll, who plays Dr. Wilson, a lot of the other writers and people on the show got into the community and started talking directly to fans about making the show and how we felt about it and what our experience was and what we were intended. And I think that is where it's unlike anything that I've ever worked on because normally on all of our shows we make shows and we go, all right, they're popping out into the world and yeah. then we move on and yep. we don't, we're not a part of any of that discussion. And I think the difference between Facebook and all these other places, the future is if we are really making content for the fans, then the future is about engaging with the fans about the content. And that's how we succeed. That's why the show is doing as well as it did. Like you're saying, the, the end point of any production, no more is just when you just put it out. It's that constant engagement. It's that, you know, liking and commenting and sharing. And that is the beauty that there is on Facebook. And we were talking about this before the show. It's between like 1.5 and like 2.5 billion daily active users on Facebook. And that is, that's almost mind-blowing. Of a, There's 7.5 or 8 billion people in the world. And a fifth to a quarter to a third of them are on Facebook every single day wanting content. Mm-hmm. And they're going, obviously, to Sacred Lies, which is incredible. Um, I want to talk, uh, you know, this was shot in, you know, very theatrical. And yet you, people are watching on their phones. And you said that was an interesting thing, too, of as a, as, a, as a creator, you're like, man, I want this to appear just very nice. I'm shooting it in 4K, shooting it in these huge cameras. And people are watching it on their phones. Yeah. Talk about what that is like for you to be able to see that good, bad. What does that feel like? Well, I mean, our goal with this show particularly was we want to make a show that could be on HBO that looks like it was made on H- at HBO, and we want to put it on Facebook. You know, mm-hmm. that was that was the creative goal in terms of you know the cinematic value of the show. Um, so yeah, we were shooting this, imagining it playing on a movie screen, basically, you know, and, uh, and when I watch it on a phone or I see other people watching it on a phone, I'm sort of like, oh, it hurts my heart a little because I just wonder, are you seeing everything? But Mm. that said, the main thing is that they're watching and it looks pretty great on the phone, which is the good news, Mm -hmm. right? Um, it's, you know, we were conscious when shooting it that we didn't want to shoot everything too dark, so... You know, things Very darken true. up on a tablet or on a phone. So we we had an awareness of how it would be consumed. I just hope that people also realize that you can watch it on your television. Mm-hmm. You can put it on your big screen and really enjoy all the detail that's there. I was going to say, is there any... Do you think the, the future is having both? Where I know even Netflix. I know you worked on Netflix, Jessica Jones. Mm-hmm. If there maybe we're looking into going into theaters. Do you think that with content is having it in both places? Or even with, like, Sacred Lies, do you look at that of advancing or being able to get it onto bigger screens at some point? Or I don't know how you view that as a filmmaker. I don't. I mean, I don't expect that to happen. I think we're fighting for the survival of... Of movies, mm-hmm. you know, on big screens, mm-hmm. like I think that that is uh, that's a struggling business, and I don't really see television going sort of back that direction. Yeah. I think we have created a thing where people's screens in their houses are getting bigger. Ooh, very you true. You know what I mean? People are people are creating their own mini movie theaters in their living rooms, and 
that's where they're staying. Yeah, I have a projector at my house. It's like yeah. with 70, 80 inches on the wall, and TVs are only getting bigger. So that's very true. Of yeah. the, it's like we're, we're moving in both directions of out of TV screens, but still trying to get bigger screens in our houses. That's yeah. very interesting. I never thought about that. Obviously, the, the engagement with people and the fans has been incredible, and I know I would likely get some backlash if I didn't try to look ahead to a possible season two. And I know you can't talk yeah. about it a lot, but does hearing from them give inspiration and what's the creative process for a, a possible season two look like? Yeah. Well, here's what I can say. It makes a huge difference to Facebook, who are the decision makers, that the community has been asking for the second season the way they have. Like, Mm -hmm. it is very, very influential. You have no idea how much power you have, right? (laughs) Um, So that's being heard, which Mm -hmm. is tremendous news. I'm not, you know, free to say whether we're developing a season two, but this is what I really, this is something I, I will say, and I'm sure some fans will be really mad at me about this. Um, Minnow's story, mm-hmm. you know, that arc with her and Dr. Wilson in that season was always intended to be 10 episodes. It was always meant to tell a story with a beginning, middle, and end that left you wondering, what does she do next? But, but you know, hoping the best for her without answering every single question. Interesting. My goal was never, in, in creating content to tell you every single thing that happens to a person, right? It's to try to tell a story that takes it where a character starts in one place, goes through something important, and then ends in a different place than where they started. And hopefully that's a satisfying place. So if there was another seat, I know there's char- the Angel's character, Dr. Wilson's character, those are ones that people are really thinking that maybe could go far. So if, if there was a season two, it would dive into another character? I, would, uh... I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. Okay. I mean, what I would say right now is... We very much intended for the show that you saw to those characters in that world to go 10 episodes. That that was what we intended. And so any sort of future, you know, there will there will be links, but any sort of future, if it happens, um, it will be connected, but it, it, I wouldn't, it's none of the things that you think. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, I'm sure that will make people mad, but I really feel like when you love something, you just don't want it to stop. You just want to see what happens. You don't want to lose those people, right? And mm-hmm. that's the reason you love it. But sometimes you've all seen shows that have gone multiple seasons pushing stories past where they were satisfying mm-hmm. just to try to hold on to that. Mm-hmm. We're not afraid because we know the fans of this show will follow this show when we go into new territory, when when and if we start telling different stories, because what they love is the creative behind the show and the message of the show, and the, and and all of that will always be hundred percent a part of whatever we do next, if we do anything. Hundred percent. I'm glad you 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 have that. I guess, outlook, which is great because, like you said, a lot of people, they try to push it too far and they try to just keep grasping instead of what can be the difficult thing is going in a new direction and trusting that direction. And so thank you for having that attitude because, again, I think it's very brave. How much of your you know, upbringing and your creativity when you were younger, and I know, uh, like you said, living on an island with electricity and the upbringing uh, played a role in this. How much did you gain from your, uh, or draw from your own experiences for Sacred Lives? Well, for me, you know, now that I have a bit of power in my career to decide what kind of work I want to do and what I don't want to do, the things I look for are things that I feel when I read it or when I think of an idea, I ask myself this question, like, is there anybody else that would do this better than you would or would be more right for this story than you are. And if I can answer that, 
and say, oh, yeah, this other writer I know would do a better job at this, then I don't take it. So the reason I was so attracted to The Sacred Lives of Minnow Blyden book was when I picked it up and read it, I felt this deep kinship with Minnow's journey, you know, which is have myself having grown up in cults and hippie communities and sort of outside of what you call normal culture um, in a bubble on a tiny island in Spain and then moving to America at 17, the same age that Minnow is when she comes out of those woods alone. I had to learn the world and I had never, you know, had a television. I didn't have a telephone. I didn't have to, you know, I had never paid a bill. Like I just all of these things. I didn't have a credit card. Like the world was very new to me and I didn't understand it and I was not educated and I had a lot of lofty goals and I had to like be humbled by my experience. So when I read Minnow's story, I deeply connected to the idea of a young person raised in their own version of reality and having to come out into the world and understand that that's not everyone else's reality. How I want to dive into this, to your upbringing, because how old were you when you moved to this island? I was seven. Okay. Um, and before that, we lived in you know a commune, sort of cult in Laurel Canyon here in L.A. We lived in Greece. We lived in Mexico. We lived in London. Like we moved all the time. This was all you ever knew as a kid. It wasn't like you had all the technology and then it was like immediately gone. No, I mean also remember I'm old, so we didn't mm-hmm. have the internet and we didn't have cell phones True. and all that stuff when I was a kid. True. So yeah, no, I mean you know I'd seen televisions, of course mm-hmm. I'd been to movies. I mean there were things, you know I wasn't living a completely. You weren't all the way off. The I grid. wasn't a Cavinian, but <laughs> but I definitely uh, didn't didn't live the day to day normal things that an American kid lived mm-hmm. at all. And I lived in a culture that was very. You know, sexuality was very much out in the open, not in a destructive way, actually, mm-hmm. not in a weird, creepy way, but people mm-hmm. were very nude and very okay mm-hmm. with that. And there was a lot of, you know, psychedelic drug use that was really, you know, permissive and mm-hmm. fine. And we were all doing that as we were kids. And, you know, there was a lot of, um, it was just a very different culture. And and the things that I was taught or the ways that I I grew up when you when you come to America at seventeen, you have to completely rethink those things. And how much did that encourage your creativity? Because I know you 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 know started writing when you were young and doing plays. And I think one of the plays, uh, it, you did like a, a Christmas play with Santa and his, his twin. And like, it was Jesus and Jesus. His, and that's his what twin. I mean. Yeah, not yeah. <laughs> yes. So you know, well, this was the thing. I was in this weird hippie school, and they were like, "Hey, you know, you have." I was starting to write and direct theater, and I was like fourteen at the time. And they said, "Will you write the Christmas play?" And you know, I mean, my parents, like my mother, was in a Wicca circle, you know, like at the time, and had been in a cult before that. Like, I, you know, you were not going to get a classic (laughs) rendering of like the story. Jesus, from for me. Yes. So I wrote this like wacky slapstick comedy about mm. how Jesus had a twin sister named Lucifer, and that Jesus was actually the not so smart one, and she was the smarter one. I mean, <laughs> it was very, you know, it, it was crazy about it. Is we put it on at a at a Catholic Spanish Catholic church, mm-hmm. and thankfully the priests and they didn't speak any English, so they didn't understand what it was that I was saying because I was really. Yeah, it was pushing the envelope. And <laughs> They're I, reacting to the nonverbals. Yeah, and we you know we looked like there was the Virgin Mary and there was, you know what I mean? We had some weirdness, like there were cars going by and Virgin Mary was hitchhiking. It was all very confusing. <laughs> I don't remember enough about it, but it was a, it was a, it was a dangerous start to my career. Mm. So where did the like desire to write or to be involved in film or in TV or in production come from? 
Um, so my father, my biological father, who I wasn't raised with, who okay. wasn't really in my life that much when I was a child, uh, he was a playwright named okay. Neil Tucker, and he wasn't a wildly successful playwright. He was like an underground um, mm-hmm. gay playwright, mm-hmm. and he, uh, but he was influential in that he, my early days, I remember him writing, and I remember he would, he would, I would sort of dictate poems and things. And he would write them down and save them in a folder. So I was told from the time I was really little that I had a gift. Um, and because I just spontaneously did it all the time. And as I grew older, I would just start writing like poetry or essays or stories and things on any piece of scrap of paper. Um, I got into theater when I was like eight or so. And started immediately. It was acting and... I just wanted to be the boss, though, instantly. Like, I wanted... I didn't like having to learn anyone else's lines. I didn't want anyone to tell me what to do. I wanted to, (laughs) like, be telling everyone what to do. So by the time I was about 13, I started a theater company, and we started producing plays I wrote and directed um, twice a year. How big is this group uh, at 13? 30 kids, and they were all, like, really, really high hippie kids that had, like, no interest in... Most of them had no interest in pursuing anything to do with theater. They just liked the idea that we were... I was doing really irreverent work. I was doing things that your parents didn't totally approve of. Oh, okay. And, you know, that was kind of the... I think the draw was to have community with their peers and make stuff that was a little bit like giving the finger to... Did your parents approve it? Did your parents yeah. know what was going on? Oh, yeah, on? my parents okay. thought it was awesome. They... <laughs> I mean, my parents are wild hippies who were, yes. like, down, and they thought it was just really cool and were super supportive and encouraging that I was doing all this stuff. Was it easy or hard to get 30 kids who are, you know, wild and rambunctious a little bit yeah. to all work in the same production and be on the same page or difficult? Yeah. it was insane. It was really, really difficult. Like, I would cry and scream and yell at them, and, like, I was hysterical most of the time because, like, Stop messing around! <laughs> Why don't you know your lines? You know, I would just be, I'd storm off, I quit! I hate all of you! And then they'd, I'd come back in like an hour. You know, it was really yeah. a challenge to get them to listen to me. But ultimately, I guess I just had this, I, I had this sort of force that I've, I guess I've always had, where, you know, I'm bossy. And, and then if you think, you, if you act like you know what you're doing, Here's the secret to everything. If you really act like you know what you're doing and you convince yourself you do, everyone believes you. So true. <laughs> That's like the best and worst advice ever. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, fake it till you make it, almost. Keep faking it because even after you make it, you're still going <laughs> to be faking it. Because every day there's stuff where I'm like, I have no idea how to deal with this. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to solve this problem. I don't know how to respond to this note that I got. You know, and you can't do that as a leader. You can't stop and be like, I don't know what I'm... You can, you know, confide in the people you confide in. Like, I don't know what I'm doing today. Mm -hmm. But you got to stand up and be like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to solve this right now. And there's going to be a solution and you don't have to worry about it. It'll be fixed by 2 (laughs) p.m. And you do. The weird thing is you just do. You can actually instill confidence in yourself by doing that. You know, the, the chance of you succeeding if you don't believe in yourself at first what, 5% maybe, but if you actually believe and say, no, I'm going to do this, I may not know how, I'll bluff for everyone else Mm -hmm. to say that I know how, but if you actually believe that it can be done, that's that's always the first step. If you don't have that, you have nothing. It it is the first step, and it's a careful balance, because you have to have confidence and believe in yourself, and you also have to be able to be self-critical, and those are the two things that are, they go hand in hand. If you can't admit what level that you're at to yourself, 
if you can't be like, yeah, I did a bad job with that today, just and I need to fix it, and how am I going to be do it differently? Or this is like not the best script I've ever written, and I know mm-hmm. it's not, you know, but I will be better next time. If you can't have that conversation, then all the confidence on the on the world just makes you a jerk. Because you have to, you you know, in order to be great at what you do, which I'm still working on, I've got a long way to go to be great, <laughs> is exactly that, is knowing what level you're at and being honest with that at least to yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What was you, you moved back to L.A., uh, back to the States at age 17, dropped out of yeah. high school. Yeah. What was your confidence level and belief at yourself at that point? I was at like an 80 to 90% sure I was going to be <laughs> <laughs> but that's what's ridiculous is that, you know, you know, I can look back at that and be like, what was I thinking? I just I grew up in this bubble and everyone told me I was a genius because I was on a tiny island with, you know, I was doing big things on a tiny island. So how many people on this tiny island? I don't know the exact population, but it's under 10,000 under more, 12. More, no, no, no. More. OK, OK. No, it's not that tiny. I mean, he okay. like the party capital of Europe. Oh, yes. OK. But uh, but, you know, when I grew up, there was much more rural. It was much less mm-hmm. developed than it is now. Um, so, yeah, I moved here and I thought, well, obviously, I'm 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 a big deal. I'm yeah. just going to come here eventually. It may take a minute, but they'll learn. They'll realize. And what I realized was, no, I'm really bad. Like, I came here and realized I didn't know anything. Was that an immediate realization? No, but it was it was a gradual one. But, it, okay. you know, it took a couple of years before it really sunk in that I was, like, where I was in the food chain in terms of my work. I just, you know, what it comes down to is what are you contributing? What are you actually making? I wasn't sophisticated at 17. And, you know, mm-hmm. I had a lot to learn, and I learned by doing. I opened another theater company. I put on a lot of different plays. I wrote a lot of bad screenplays. I... You know, I did a I did a lot of work that was pretty terrible before I made anything that was good at all. And that those years of it is just knowing, you know, okay, I'm I'm giving this my heart, I'm giving it my all and it didn't work yet. It's not good enough yet. It's not good enough. And at some point, you know, if you keep doing it, you get better. The 2 to 3 years what kept you going in that to you said it took 2 to 3 years well, before you even realized that yeah, I'm actually not that good. What those two to three years, what were you telling yourself? What was your emotions, your mindset? Well, to clarify, it took 11 years before I ever got paid to do what I do, right? It took 11 years before I got a job as a writer. Wow. So, you know, those, I'm just saying it took me a while to realize I was so arrogant, you know? What kept me going initially was just like chutzpah and confidence and arrogance. And then once I realized I did a play, one of my first plays here, and it just was like, bombed just horrible like people were falling asleep and walking out and it was like (laughs) embarrassingly bad and I really hit me in that moment I was like oh my god I'm that bad like I'm really bad and what kept me going was I knew that this was the only thing I was ever gonna really be happy doing like I knew that I had a an ability for it. I knew that I had a drive. I couldn't picture anything else, like ultimately. Mm-hmm. So I knew I had to get better. I just had to work hard. I had to be better. Were you constantly drawing from your experiences in LA at that point to be able to use that creativity to, to write and to be able to produce content? I've always used my life as a jumping off point for everything that I do because my attitude about it is this, like there are a million ideas. Everyone's like, oh, I have a great idea for something. Ideas are not that important. What really matters is when you have something to say or something emotional that you can put on a page or on a screen that people can connect to. 
it's not about the big concept. It's about how do you make people feel. And I think the way you make people feel is by telling something that only you could tell that's so personal and specific that people can feel that urgency, right, and that intention. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I all the best stories, every artist I know and respect, it starts with something that they love or something that's specific to them, and it comes from that mm-hmm. place. And that's the, that is the real. And like even I think yeah. we were talking about – you know, before the show, we were talking about the, how the show started, and it's the life that everyone you know lives on Instagram and, and portrays to people. But that's not where the connection is. The connection is the real. The mm-hmm. connection is I went through this experience, and I know a lot of other people. How mm-hmm. many of the people who are living their amazingly best lives on Instagram? How many people can relate to that? Nobody can relate to that. Yeah. And I think that's why it eventually falls off. People are like, "Oh, it looks so great," but that's not real. Yeah. And so to be able to do that, that. That's incredible. You worked a lot of odd jobs. Yeah. Uh, tell me about those. How did you get uh, into those? Where was it? Was it I need, need to survive, so I'm just going to do this? You're segueing to how did you become a stripper? Well, the, yeah, that's yes, okay. Yes, we it's, uh, yeah. I don't have, I have no problem talking about that. Um, so I was a waitress, mm-hmm. you know. What do you do when you have you, your high school dropout living in Los Angeles and you don't really know mm-hmm. anyone? Like, you become a waiter, which I did for like three years. And I moved in with some girls that were... Is the restaurant still here in L.A.? Unfortunately, it got closed out. Okay. It doesn't exist anymore. I'm very old. (laughs) And so I moved in with some girls who were in my theater company at the time. And they were uh, dancers. And they were coming home with like... You know, I was making in a day about 50 or 60 bucks in tips. And they were coming home with 600. Wow. And I was going... Okay, what are you doing? And at first I was really judgmental. I was like, because mm-hmm. I'm a feminist, you mm-hmm. know. My shirt, you can't read it, it says wild feminist. Okay, okay. I saw there so, said something. So, you know, I'm a feminist. I was like, I don't know how I feel about what you're doing with your bodies. And this makes me really kind of angry and I don't know why. Um, and But I became more and more fascinated with what it was that they were doing. And, and not just the money end of it. I actually, this was literally my thought. I thought, I'm living this life. What do I have to write about? How am I living a life worth writing about? And I thought, I didn't feel pretty enough. I didn't feel like I would get, I would be able to do that job. But my friends were like, look, I think you're pretty enough. You could go and just try it out one day. And I thought, I'm going to do it once because that will be a good story. Like, I'll have done this once and I'll tell a good story <laughs> about it. And I went and I did it and I got hired. And, you know, I was 20, I was 19 or 20. When, I mean, this is a long time mm-hmm. ago. Um, and I remember... I, I didn't, you know, I grew up naked. I grew up on beaches. Like, it yeah, was it not, was a... like, the, the nudity was not a thing for me. And mm-hmm. I had a laugh. I thought it was really fun. And also, I romanticized the performance side of it. Like, I wanted, I saw myself as, like, you know, an old burlesque dancer. Like, I had this whole fantasy. Of, <laughs> so I got really into it. I got really into the costumes and the creativity and the and the show of it all. And eventually ended up convincing my entire family in Spain to open a strip club. And we opened the first strip club in Ibiza, Spain in like 1997. And it ran for like nine years. And it was a sort of reinvention of a strip club because it was like theater. It was like burlesque mm-hmm. combined with an American striptease club set in like this party central of Ibiza. And it was it was very creative. It was really <laughs> a different thing. Um, what, what uh, I guess, yeah, I, I love, you're talking about the, you know, what story am I going to get out of this? Yeah. Do you think that with a lot of areas of life of like, mm-hmm. what, could I get something good out of this? Maybe that's just an extra added benefit? You know, I live my life very much knowing that the story, the things that I'm 
experiencing are going to be the things I write about. So, yeah, I think a lot about that. I think about doing things that are scary, doing things that are adventurous, making sure I've lived a life that is worth living and talking about. Mm -hmm. And some of that's terrifying, right? And um, But so far, I don't have dramatic regrets about anything I've done in my life. There are definitely things I can look back on the stripping of it all. There were definitely roads I went down during that time where I was like, that was a little bit, I'm, that's a little bit dangerous. Like, mm-hmm. I'm glad that I'm okay. I'm glad nothing bad happened. I'm glad I didn't, you know, fall off into any dark holes along the way. But the reality is during it, I led kind of a magical life with it. I was kind of like, in my own mind, I was this, you know, revolutionizing the sex industry feminist who was made, making beautiful art with my body. That's how mm-hmm. I felt about it. And it paid, I got to put on all my plays. It funded all of my theater. It paid my rent. You know, I worked like two days a week and I wrote and wrote and wrote during that time. Mm-hmm. I wrote a play about it, which went on tour to Ireland and wow. did ran in L.A. and did really super well wow. about being a stripper with a bunch of other strippers that we wrote a play together about it, which was amazing. I wrote screenplays about it. One of them got into Project Greenlight and that's how my career started was I co-wrote a screenplay with uh, uh, my writing partner at the time, Sarah Gamble, and that got into season two of Project Greenlight. So we were on the show. Awesome. And I know that, you, you said, yeah, one of the one of the best things that ever happened was that you didn't end up winning Project Greenlight. Yeah, it was great because, you know, the problem with Project Greenlight at the time is, you know, they were earnestly trying to make something good. They really mm-hmm. were. Like, every everyone's cynical about, oh, they just wanted to make a TV show. They didn't. They wanted to make next Goodwill Hunting. Mm-hmm. The problem is if you put a camera on people who have never done this before and watch them try to go through this in a high-pressure situation with not much money and a as a really intense timeline, they're going to look like complete morons. There's mm-hmm. just, if you put a camera on me, and I've been doing this for 17 years now, if you put a camera on me, you would still see me look like a complete nightmare certain days, and that would mm-hmm. be plenty of entertainment. So the problem is, if you win, you're exposed for all of your mistakes. If you don't win, you look like the great person who didn't win, who <laughs> should have won, because they're so talented. Yeah. Everybody loves that underdog who is, oh, you're really close, but I know I'm going to support you more because you deserved this. Exactly. Did you know at the, did you think at the time that that was a blessing? Or yes. Was it, really? So I was definitely it, thought at the time it was a blessing. I knew right away because, you know, look, it got me an agent before we even lost. Just being in the running, you know, out of 11,000 scripts, we were in the top three. It was like, okay, that got us representation, mm-hmm. which was the ha- three quarters of the battle. Just getting a good agent Mm-hmm. As a writer is is everything almost, you know, and so we'd already won that. And then I knew because I'd seen the first year of the show that like, yeah, me and my writing partner who had been right. We've been writing together for many years. We were roommates like we would have been fighting like crazy on camera because you can't do the job without arguing. And so we would have been really entertaining, mm-hmm. but it would have been very damaging yeah. I think in the it's long run. It's good TV, but not necessarily good business. Not for us. So it was great. It was we could we couldn't have done better having coming in sort of second, third place on that show. What do you consider to be your first big break in the industry? Oh God. For I mean, there's so many breaks. That's the funny thing about it, right? It's like I guess Project Greenlight would be a huge break because it got me an agent and that is how I started my career. The next show I did was a huge break because I got hired by an incredible showrunner, John McNamara, who runs The Magicians now and mm-hmm. is a great guy, he taught me a lot of what I know and really let me like use my strengths in a writer's room. And um, But then that show got canceled like after four episodes, <laughs> so it was no one ever heard of it. 
And then I got on, you know, Supernatural, which is a big break because it was a it was a big hit. But you know, for me, it wasn't a good working environment. It wasn't the way. It wasn't the kind of show I wanted to make. Um, and so, you know, that was like a big failure because I I got on a show for a couple of years that I felt that I was failing at every day, and that. It's like, ugh. and mm-hmm. but you know the the giant change in my whole career, the thing that really launched me was True Blood. Mm-hmm. Um, when I got hired by Ellen Ball, and then I spent six years on that show at HBO with before Game of Thrones. You know, you got to think like there were only there was only like Showtime and HBO. There weren't all these other places. So when True Blood was a hit, it was a hit in the way that we don't have hits anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it was like the prime moment on a show that was so watched. Yes, and absolutely. Alan was this incredible showrunner who really just was like, run with it, Ryle. What do you want to say? Say it. How do you, you know, go produce your own episode? Go be in post. Anything I wanted to do and learn and be a part of, he just opened the door. That's awesome. So by the time I left that show, I was a showrunner. I was an executive producer and I knew how to run a television show. And that was the... A tremendous gift. Do you think a lot of people look at life and say they just they live for the big break? And like you're saying, the big break isn't always what you think. Do you think that's a that's a a falsehood that a lot of people say? Man, I just want my big break. When looking at what you're saying of the big break, there's multiple big breaks. Totally, and everything's a, everything's a break. You know, it's like when I got a play that went on tour to Ireland when I was 23. That was a big break. It was the first time you know someone gave me an actual check that it wasn't much, but it was like I had a play. You know, there, that and but now is that significant in the bigger picture of all the things I've done since? It's like mm-hmm. this small, but you know there are so many breaks, and I don't think you can be striving just towards a gigantic thing. I really believe like the main reason that I keep doing what I'm doing is that I legitimately feel grateful to get to do it every day and if I wasn't getting paid I would still be doing it every day and I would be giving my heart to it the same way I was giving Mm -hmm. my heart to it when I was in a theater company with a bunch of kids (laughs) it's it's this is what I do with my life every day and sometimes they succeed and sometimes they don't but I I get to I get to the gift is I get to do it absolutely absolutely it's it's something that you love and you it's you're passionate about and to be able to pursue your passions is the the biggest win that you can do on a lot of days you said it was several years before you got paid to do what you loved. Do you remember maybe the day that you realized that you actually got paid to do what you like? You said it took a number of years. Oh, yeah. Do you remember the day where it was like, oh, by the way, you landed this and we're actually going to pay you for the... Do you remember that day? Yeah. Well, I mean, I got paid to do this play in Ireland, but, you know, that wasn't... I was still having to work as a dancer mm-hmm. to support myself. The real difference is when I stopped having to dance. So I walked, I went to the strip club I was working in downtown Los Angeles. Um, I went in my last night, and the next morning I was going to go work at, uh, at, at my first show, Eyes, for ABC. And so I remember my last night of work and walking with my little suitcase full of my costumes, and I gave them to all these girls. And they, they were all not, like... They were not believing me. Everyone was like, oh, yeah, you'll be back yeah. next week because, mm-hmm. like, you're going to go be on a writing staff, right? Like, <laughs> how often does that happen? And I, it was the it was my entire life changed at that moment when I walked into a writer's room the next day, you know, practically still wearing the makeup. <laughs> and it was, you know, in a room full of people who had gone to Harvard and Yale and, like, had been in television for years. Did you feel intimidated? I was so intimidated. I was terrified. Um, and I felt like they were going to fire me every single day for weeks. Like every, I was afraid to go to the bathroom so I was, to leave the writer's room because I was afraid that it would look like I wasn't listening or I'd walked out. You know, I was so determined to succeed, and I felt so unprepared <laughs> for what was out there. 
um, that, yeah, it was, it was absolutely terrifying. What drives you? In times like that, when you say, I'm terrified, I like every single day, but you, you're still giving it 110%, you're still, you know, cranking through, what drives you? That I will be more prepared than you will be. That's what, how I get through it. It's like, I don't have to be as talented as you. Sometimes I feel that I'm not. So how I answer that is I will be more prepared. I will stay up all night. I will read the thing 24 times. I will do research that the next person won't do. I will come in tomorrow and I'll be okay because I know that I will have done everything within my power to be more prepared. And so that's how I get through it. That's how I've had all the success I've had is that I refuse to walk into a room and say it's good enough. I do absolutely everything I can within my power to be to succeed at it. Do you think it's possible to plan your path in L.A. in this industry? Or is being able to adapt and be able to go with the flow, how important is that? I think you have to have a picture of what it is that you want. And that can be somewhat murky. It doesn't have to be a perfect picture. But you have to have a picture because I think if you can't imagine what it is specifically that you want, you can't. You don't know how to get to mm-hmm. it, right? I knew I wanted to be in charge. I thought I wanted to direct and write because I just wanted to be in charge creatively of what I was doing. I didn't want to hand things off to other people and watch them get to make it. Mm-hmm. So I knew that, and that was what I was you know, going down the road towards. Like I need to have creative ownership over my work, and that show running is the ultimate piece of that mm-hmm. because you're involved in every single decision in every single department um and i didn't know what show running was when i became a writer i didn't know that was a thing and then even I, a lot of people now they're listening and be like what is a show run right. show run is a creator the creator of a show they, they're always mm-hmm. almost always writers like mm-hmm. you know you and you write the the pilot you write the show and then you oversee all the other writers and you oversee production and you hire the directors and you mm-hmm. sort of oversee everything but i didn't know that was a job going in and for most of my career it was not a job that women had you couldn't be a showrunner. For sure. So I couldn't picture it for a long time. And so I sort of was on all these staffs sort of trying to figure myself out because where do, where do you aspire toward if there's no examples for you, right? Was that hard? I mean, how did, did, did were there anyone else that you were able to look to, to and be able to help inspire one another, be able to guide, or what, how much of a challenge was that in an industry dominated by men? You know, I had a writing partner going in, Sarah Gamble, who now runs You on Lifetime, and she ran The Magicians as well, and she was my writing partner, and we were both in it together, so it helped a lot that we were two young women sort of Mm -hmm. being like, we had a very sort of attitude of like, well, there's no, you know, we're going to take it, because if they won't give it to us, we'll break down the door. Well, we're, you know, we're going to change everything, right? And I think it helped to have a partner. Um, And I had mentors, you know, Jill Soloway, who... Uh, does uh, you know started on six on six feet under does transparent? She was a person early in my career who read me and saw my plays and was like, "You're special and you can do something." And she helped me get an agent later. Um, mm-hmm. So you know there were people along the way, and you know I watched from afar Shonda Rhimes become Shonda Rhimes. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was like, oh my god, a woman can have an empire, you know, those things, there are very few examples of them, but they were all meaningful because you have to be able to picture what it could look like. What do you view your role for the next generation and how do you do that? So, you know, my role is to create a positive, empowered space where we make the kinds of stories that aren't being told on television. And the way I do that is, you know, for instance, I get assistance and writer's assistants and I so those are people that I seek out and I I read them I read their scripts before I hire them even though they're just 
for a while, maybe mm-hmm. all they're doing is taking notes or getting coffee. But it's a it's a program for me where I commit to a couple years with somebody and I commit to, to teaching them whatever I possibly can, helping, helping them get an agent and sometimes hiring them. So um, I, there are about four people now that have that I've worked with who now have agents and now have careers and have gone through this. I only at this point I'm working with women and, and diverse people just mm-hmm. because I really feel like there is still unfortunately a big hold mm-hmm. in our business Absolutely. for those voices. So Absolutely. I'm trying to be a part of encouraging that. Um, so yeah, I mean that's what I can do. The other thing I can do is make sure that we're writing diverse characters that are you know meaningful and that there are people in the room that can speak to those characters that are. I'm not sitting in a room full mm-hmm. of white people who are imagining what it's like to be black. Like you know that's my job is to hire people. And to create an inclusive space and to be the kind of leader I hope that um, I, I hoped that I had to look up to coming up. Absolutely. Right? What, is, what do you see your role as uh, a thermostat versus the thermometer in the culture of being able to impact the culture and be able to drive it in a direction but also be able to reflect what's going on because people, like you said, people relate to what's going on and you want to be able to have that. Do you think of that with the content that you create of being a thermostat versus a thermometer? I mean, I've never thought of it that way. I think that's <laughs> really clever. Um, I think about it, I think I take it very, very seriously as a responsibility to consider what it is I'm putting out into the world and how that impacts people, right? And particularly now that I have the power to say yes and no to things, mm-hmm. right? Um, I will not do anything that's like really incredibly graphically violent. Um, I am not interested in telling stories like that. Um, and I really believe in that, that our stories need to be heading towards hope. Not that we gloss anything over and we give everybody a pat on the back and be like, it's a perfect Mm -hmm. world. You know, if you've seen my work, you know, it's not what I do. (laughs) I think it's actually really important to look into the darkness, look into the most terrifying, sad, tragic, painful things and find a way to shed light upon them Mm -hmm. and live with them and Mm -hmm. survive them. And that's the kind of work that I'm really focused on particularly now because I feel like we're in a time where we are so divided and we are so angry and, you know, we all are desperate to come together Mm -hmm. in a place and feel connection to each Mm -hmm. other fundamentally. Underneath all that anger, we want to get past it as as a race, as a human being. So I really want to make work that can somehow be a part of that and at least isn't taking us in the other direction. Absolutely. You know what I mean? That's, that's amazing. And thank you for that. Seriously, oh, thank, thank you, you for that. For A, thank you for the work that you're doing to be able to build up other women filmmakers and be able to build up minority filmmakers and to be able to help them on their journey because you're right. That is certainly something that is missing. And so thank you for doing that. But uh, also thank you for, yeah, the message of positivity. I was just, we're all about on the show. I mean, anyone who's watched this show, our loyal fans, they know that. And so I'm yeah. glad and I want to be able to encourage you in that. How many ideas do you got going on uh, in your mind right now? Is it just a, do you have napkins that you write down ideas that you yeah. just have ideas of like, man, I want to do this. All right, I could do this. Let me just put this maybe on the back burner and I'll do it maybe later. Well, I, I believe that when ideas are really good, they stick around and they'll have momentum. So often, you know, I, I just have a bunch of things spinning around in my head and some of them just go away right away. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that was like, what was I thinking? But the really good ones stay and sometimes it'll take me years to get to them. Right now, um, I'm doing a pilot that I wrote six years ago that's back 
um, and potentially, you know, has some interest in it going. Um, I'm writing a musical with, um, with a 90s rock star who I really love. I can't talk about. Um, <laughs> so I'm doing that show. That and I'm, I'm developing a pitch with, one, with my former assistant, um, who's this amazing writer, Kimmy Lee. And I'm developing a pitch based on her experiences for another mm -hmm. show. Um, I've got so many things. And I have a documentary about my strip club um, wow. that I'm also trying to make happen. So I'm always, I, you know, I basically have my hands in all kinds of different things at once. And you kind of have to because, unfortunately, in our business, a lot of these things will die. Like, all these things I'm telling you about, maybe half of them, maybe, if I'm lucky, will ever see the light of day. And a lot of them will just make it to a certain point and then lose momentum. But you never know until you flush it out. You never know until you flush it out. Sometimes you never know until you go all the way through selling it and developing it mm -hmm. <laughs> and all of that. <laughs> and then it dies. But, you know, that's kind of the nature of, of what we do. And that teaches you for next time. It does. And it also teaches you something I really would say to young artists is mm -hmm. that you are not the one story you think is so important right now that you think is the most amazing thing you've ever done and it's so precious and you don't want to ruin it and if they steal it from you and you're holding onto it so tight and you are not that thing. Whatever that thing is, that is just the it is one step towards your next thing. And you know, you have to have a certain ability to let things go and move on to other things. Mm -hmm. And if you are a real artist, you will continue to generate work forever. Whatever your Absolutely. ideas are, they will come and go. Absolutely. Well, that's a great way just to, to leave off the show. And so thank you very much. Thank I mean, you. what a great inspiration and encouraging episode. I, I Again, I thank you so much just for the work that you're doing, but also just for being so open here on the show. And I know mm. like, uh, that's, you know, again, that's why we do this show is to be able to share the real life stories and be able to talk about the, the challenges that people face and the obstacles and be, how did you get past them? How did you feel on the times when you were knocked down? How did you get back up? So thank you so much for doing that. And thank you guys for joining us again for another episode. I can never be here on the Popcorn Talk. If you want to follow Rael after the show on Twitter at Rael88, also on Instagram at Rael Tucker. You can follow me at the only MC on Instagram and on Twitter and at the Popcorn Talk on Instagram and on Twitter. We're so thankful to be here on this network. And certainly, if you haven't checked it out yet, Sacred Lies on Facebook. Watch tens of millions of views. Join that fan community. Be able to just build up and support that show. And again, I wish you the best of luck on whatever the future holds with that show. Certainly, I think it's headed in the right direction, which is fantastic. And hopefully you guys are headed in the right direction after listening to today's episode. Thank you again for joining us. We're also available on iTunes. Like, comment, rate, subscribe. Tell a friend. This content is free. All we ask is you be able to share it and be able to spread some positivity in the world. Until next time, we'll see you later. From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit PopcornTalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.